We're kicking off Season 7 by driving over to Austria by way of Munich to the Stengelwerk Bio Hotel to meet up with Nick Selby. Nick is a cybersecurity expert, but more importantly for us, he's also one of the foremost experts in police shootings. We discuss a number of topics, including the use of body cameras, legislating from the police car, poverty as it relates to police encounters, and adding context to police shootings of unarmed people. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Nick Selby. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have Nick Selby with me. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. We are at the Kitzbühler. Um, we're in Kitzbühler. We're at the Singlewort Hotel uh, in Austria. And uh, weirdly, you just happen to be close by. So we've been trying to make this happen for, I think, about a year now. And we finally yeah. just kind of made it. Like I asked you, you want to be on the show? You're like, yes, but I'm traveling and I'm here and there. <laughs> and so uh, we finally made that all happen. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for having me. Isn't this a weird hotel, though? It's crazy. It's, very, it's, it's really good, though. <laughs> kind of suits me, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your uh, police background. Like, what, what kind of made you get into it? Like, how'd you, like, how'd your career progress? All that stuff. All right. I was, um, I was in the information security business. Uh, I'd worked in physical security in the 90s, and then I was in the information security business. And uh, around 2010, I started doing incident response. And one thing that kept on getting me a little bit crazy was reaching out to law enforcement and getting either crickets or weirdness just you know weird all sorts of really weird reasons mm. you know I'm washing my hair I can't I, I'm sorry I can't <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know th- that's not that's not what we do you know or 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 actually like arrogance like well you know that you're not good enough really to, to get our I'm like, well, this can't be that hard. And I started to think maybe they just didn't understand. And I started, the more I dug into it, the more I heard that, yeah, actually, there's a real shortage of people in law enforcement who have any kind of information security background, this stuff. And I learned later, you know, cops really don't like not knowing. Like when you, you cop is used to being the guy in control. The guy, mm-hmm. he's the guy who shows up. He tells you, you stand over there, you go over here. And then they like, they take control of the situation. So if they're not sure what to do, they don't know what to do and it's really kind of painful um and i i started looking around and i found an agency down in texas uh that would say okay we'll send you to the police academy at age 45 we'll send you to the police academy but you got to give me a commitment uh to to work for us for a couple of years right and it was a it was a volunteer thing like but we will we just want your expertise and i said sure so i went to the police academy in in uh 2010 and got out. I did field training around Christmas time, and uh, I did what I, you know. I did what I promised. And then in 2014, I took a paying job as a detective in the uh, city of Midlothian, Texas, which mm-hmm. is sort of south of Dallas. Okay. And uh, I, I worked on a bunch of things, including a lot of uh, CSAM, a lot of uh, you know child, child sexual abuse yeah. material. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I was I was also doing a lot of online intelligence because that's you know the world that we come from. And I had started working with the NYPD, the, the intelligence division then, and then finally the intelligence bureau when they, they made it bigger. Uh, and in 2016, they actually asked me to apply for a newly created position, which I got in 2018 hmm. and worked there for a couple of years. Great. So <clears throat> I think we're, we're largely going to be talking about your book. Hmm. Um, so it's probably worth uh, giving a little background on why did you feel like this book needed to be written in the first place? Um, like, 
you could have just ignored this problem or expected the you know the various different districts. They would fix it. They would fix it. The government <laughs> yeah. would come in. They would create a maybe a piece of legislation or something and fix it. Like what what caused you to make this? We were at a moment in which we had an uh, an unprecedented in my life and time anyway opportunity to actually talk about some things that mattered would actually make a difference in the way communities are policed. There was a lot of attention. There was a lot of negative attention, right? A lot of, a lot of people were very, very concerned because it seemed all of a sudden like police were shooting people, you know, and there was this, this image that people had of this, you know, sunglass wearing white cop who's like roaming the countryside shooting black people. And it didn't, it didn't, match my experience and I had not looked at the data other than the same way a lot of us had looked at the data you know every now and then but Mm -hmm. um, I really wanted to understand what was happening and I wanted to understand is this something that is new is this something that is bad is this you know are the police inherently racist are the police not doing a good job Uh, is the media not doing a good job is the media blowing something out of proportion are activists actually understanding what's happening and the more I looked at it the more I realized that a lot of people were making a lot of money on this, but a lot of people were n- not getting into the issues beneath the headline. And the headline was, you know, somebody who is black was killed by officers who, is, who, who are white. Mm-hmm. There's more to, there, there is more to policing. There is more to interpersonal relations than your race and your gender. Uh, and, and I wanted to figure out what it was. So you compiled at some point a database of all of the different events, police encounters that led to a shooting of an unarmed is really, I think, what you were really after. Yes. Uh, unarmed civilian, because I think that's, if it's armed, you're like, well, of course, you know, you're going to shoot somebody who's trying to shoot at you. That's, yes. That's totally obviously self-defense. Or somebody else. Yeah, or somebody else. Yes, yeah. obviously. Stop the crime from happening. But unarmed, I think, is gets everyone's hackles up. And so, the, yeah. so you created a database. Can you tell us about that? Sure. And, and yeah, the criteria was, uh, I'm not interested in people who... Are, are shooting at cops. I'm not interested in people who have a weapon. Um, I'm not interested in people who appear to have a weapon. Um, there's the old, you know, the old debate about, oh, but it's an airsoft gun. Okay, tell you what, you're going to walk down the street and I'm going to, I'm going to reach into the small of my back. And I'm going to whip my hand around, and I might have a Glock 19, and I might have an airsoft gun that looks like a Glock 19. You decide quick enough for me not to be able to pull the trigger. That's insane. Mm-hmm. The, the, the law of the land in the United States, Graham versus Connor, it says that, that it's, you, you have to base uh, the decision about whether something was reasonable, about whether a reasonable person, a reasonable officer at that time, given the, the understanding that he had, the, context, the contextual understanding that he had of the situation, did he fear for his life? Was it a legitimate fear for his life? And if that's true, then, then that's justified. And that's true for citizens. It's true for police. So I'm not really interested and, in people. And, and not, not post hoc information. Yeah, you cannot. Actually, specifically, you cannot apply later things that you later learned and say, well, he should have known. Hmm. That's, not, that's, that's just not what the law says. Um, I, so I wasn't interested in people who had weapons or looked like they had weapons. And by the way, a weapon is a knife. A weapon is a vehicle. A weapon is something that looks like a, a weapon. So what I, but what I am interested in really is if somebody is unarmed genuinely unarmed 
and they get into an encounter with police and they die, that is a good candidate to understand whether deadly force is being used inappropriately Mm -hmm. or without authorization, wrongly, immorally. Mm -hmm. That was what I wanted to dig into. So how do you find that? Well, we we took a look back in 2015 when this is all going on. There there were, there still are, very, very poor yeah, data collection. Yeah, I, I was going to bring this up. Um, I remember talking to you at one point a couple years back and yep. you said something like, when I got started, it was impossible to get this information yeah. because it, it's not it's not that they didn't record it. It's that they recorded it in all kinds of weird ways. Oh, so yeah. like, the databases were not even close to one another. And so normalizing the data and getting getting actionable information out of it was next to impossible yes. without a huge amount of manual work. Yes. And so let, let's all, as a society, we all owe a guy you've never heard of, D. Brian Berghart. We, we all owe him a lot. Uh, Brian is a journalist, a, like an old school reporter mm-hmm. uh, out in the West. And one day he was perusing government statistics as one does. And he happened to notice that the previous year in the state of Florida, there were no police uses of deadly force. He's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. that didn't happen. <laughs> now, most people also don't know that the FBI, which does maintain the, the, these lists, the FBI, uh, th- this is a voluntary system. So most agencies don't actually provide data to this. And in Florida that year, there was none. Thank goodness there were none, because what Brian said was, you know what, I, I think that I can start to collect these. And so he said... And if it had been like some tiny little state, you might have shrugged and go, oh, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe really wasn't. Right. How, many, how many cops shot somebody in Rhode Island <laughs> yeah, or in yeah. Delaware? Yeah. But no, but it was, it was Florida. And, and yeah. you know, yeah. so he started... Florida man is a thing. Florida man <laughs> is a thing. He, st- he started collecting news reports, just op- just basic OSINT, right? Open source investigation. And uh, he started putting it together into something called Fatal Encounters. Mm-hmm. And he succeeded in having no political agenda in Fatal Encounters. What he wanted was the name of the person, where it happened, when it happened, and some kind of narrative of what had happened, which is probably a mistake in the end of the day but that's what he did he had a pretty good methodology and he started collecting these things and then and it started becoming successful nobody was noticing he actually went back and and i think he ultimately got records back to 2002 uh the most comprehensive open source directory that there is and it's still online it's fatalencounters.org and if you feel like giving them money uh it's you should it's it's pretty good stuff so uh, in 2014, when The Guardian and The Washington Post started realizing that, hey, there's, there's probably a story here, there's probably money here, they actually used Brian's data as the basis of what they did. The Guardian more so. The Guardian basically just took it, and Brian was very cool about it. He was like, anyone who wants to use this data, from killedbypolice.net to The Guardian to uh, Washington Post to, to us, uh, ultimately, he just said, sure, go ahead and do it. And that was great. We really do owe him a debt. The Guardian was very, uh, very editorial. Uh, they, they editorialized a lot, and they also broke regularly their own criteria for inclusion. They just wanted to see the numbers go up. That, that, that's how they, they, they looked at this as, a, as an exercise in, oh my goodness, look how terrible this is. That was really their, their prime goal. Um, they would include, for example, personal, personal fights of off-duty officers while they were drunk. You know, uh, they, they would include per, you know, domestic disputes, uh, a vehicle accident in which a civilian died. They're going to include that. Uh, people who died in jail or in prison, which is not police, that's corrections, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they would just include anything to get that number going. The Washington Post took a more scholarly approach. 
and they uh, they decided that they would focus on what they thought was really the problem, which was police shootings. So so people who died by after being shot by police, um, and they had a little bit more strict methodology for their criteria of inclusion. That was really good. Uh, in hindsight, I would have asked them to not just collect those who are shot. It turns out that with unarmed people, just a little more than half are actually shot. And there's a range of other ways that people die after an encounter with police that are really worth capturing. But the Washington Post became really the standard sort of open database of this, and it's still going today, and it's, you know, it's getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we did was we, we wanted to go a little bit beyond... Um, what was out there. I'll give you some examples of the context that we wanted because, because I think all too often people just say, black guy killed by white officer. What else do you need to know? Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Uh, just a, a few samples of what I, what I would need to know. Right. Uh, I'd like to know how the police got there. <laughs> Why were the co- Was this something that a cop just stuck his big cop nose at you and looked at, you know, decided to bother you on the street? Was this a self-dispatched incident? Or was this something where somebody in the community actually called 911 and said, help, I need help? There's a big difference between these things. Mm-hmm. Or were they in a current conflict with somebody? It might be another interesting Yeah. One. yeah. By the time the police arrived. So first, so, so I'll, I'll get to that one because that's a really important one. Mm-hmm. Um, when the 911 caller called in, they, did they give a description of the person that they were calling the police about? Did they give... Now, now fortunately... 911 dispatch information that's actually more standardized than anything in law enforcement across the entire United States. So people are always asking the th- the, the, the the dispatchers are always asking the same question on 911, right? Are you safe right now? What is going, you know, can you please describe the person? White male, black male, how old, how tall, what are they wearing, where are they standing, do they have a weapon? But these kinds of questions are just solid gold mm. context to understand what's happening. Uh, when the police arrived, did they confront the person about whom the 911 call was placed or were there any cases of misidentification when the police arrived uh had that person already injured or killed somebody had that was that person in the middle of an altercation a violent altercation um did they attack the police did they fight the police that seems like a big one <laughs> that's a big one was this person mentally ill which is not as easy a question as you might hope all right are, is, are they mentally ill? You know that they're mentally ill how? Like, did the neighbor said they're thrown off? Or was there actually a diagnosis somewhere that this person has a mental illness? And what might that be? Was that person on medication? Had that person taken their medication that day? Right? Are they treatment non-compliant? These are the kinds of questions that we wanted to ask. So we came up with about 73, 72 of these questions. And that's how we started to populate the database. Um, using open source Gathering God, foil requests forever. took about a year and a half. Jeez. Foil requests, autopsy reports, uh, coroner, you know, any any kind of report that we could get our hands on, we would ask for the police report. We would ask for we would go for the in the local media for witness reports. Were, were, the, were the police officers of the various different districts were they happy to give you this information or were they resistant? Yes, I mean, you know, it, it yeah. ran the gamut. I mean, both. <laughs> yeah, both. I mean, I had people who were, you know, just, and, and this is really, I think, in my view, the difference between a good police agency and a terrible police agency is their willingness 
to engage in giving you information. Um, or, or it could also be an indication of an agency that's trying to fix itself, right? Las Vegas famously uh, changed around that they'll release everything within 72 hours of, of, a, of a deadly force incident. That's fantastic. Boy, do they build up goodwill. You know, mm-hmm. When they come out on the first day and they say, hey, this is what we know so far. There's more information coming, but please give us some time to get our stuff together. Once that happens a few times, the community starts to trust that they're going to do yeah, it. It's a certain rhythm. It's a certain rhythm. And so, so I found that there were agencies that were uh, really reluctant, and there were agencies that were uh, really quite, you know, th- I wouldn't say that anybody was happy, but they're certainly pleased to, to do their job. Mm. Um, and I, I would also say that... that well, it seems like they might be happy if they think that this is going to lead to better standardization or better knowledge of kind of dispelling some of the myths about how people actually end up dying. I mean, it seems like there could be, it could be perceived as, you know, quite a good thing from their perspective if, if it did what it was, I think, what your original intention was is to, yeah. I wouldn't say clear cops' names, but at least give, con- it's literally in the name, give context for what the hell is happening out there. Yeah. You'd think that. I would think that. Um, I had a friend uh, who worked for the NYPD for a long time, and we were talking about something that was in the press that I can't discuss here, but it was something where I'm listening to I'm listening to the actual inside details of what we were doing, and I'm like, yeah, that was really good. Like, that was really good for society. Mm-hmm. Why the hell didn't we just say that? And, and we looked like we were covering it up. And he said, well, here's the thing. We are really good at doing good things. We are, we could take the best thing we've ever done and make it sound like a diabolical plot. <laughs> we are just so bad mm-hmm. at describing what we do. And, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a vicious circle. It's a catch-22 that after cops don't, that when, when you erode community goodwill, and it's arguable that over the years that's happened, it, it ebbs and flows. And, you know, there's good, I think the last several years have been really good with the NYPD. And there's been some, some bad times. When, when that happens, it's really a, an adversarial relationship with the press. So mm-hmm. once that's there, it's really difficult to get over. So if you're on the receiving end of a press request, you're not jumping up and down to answer the questions because you think you're going to look bad. So let's talk a little bit about data fidelity. Um, yeah. So I know you spent a lot of time kind of double, triple uh, checking your sources. Uh, in the book, it was actually kind of a funny line. It was, uh, uh, there's a marginal acceptability of inferring gender, uh, like in the case of someone who is obviously named a boy or a girl. And the example you used was Michael. I've had someone yes. on my show named Michael who's a, a woman. Yes. Uh, and so... <laughs> I thought of that immediately yeah. when I met Michael. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's uh, that. That's obviously a weird, funny example of the kind of data fidelity problems you might run into. Yes. So, so how do you how do you how did you navigate that? Uh, we asked a lot of questions. We again with with foil requests, uh, really just phone calls to dispatch at the agency asking to talk to a cop, mm-hmm. which often was the way that we got a lot of information. Uh, you know, we didn't have to go through. Most people actually don't understand. Like foil requests are really good. They should be a last resort if you want information. And I'm now speaking to the guy at the Guardian who actually foiled me. <laughs> Maybe just call the department and ask for it instead of just like actually going and filling out a formal thing, which is going to cost the city tens of thousands of dollars just to give you what you would have gotten if you'd just called them. All he wanted to know was, do I really work there? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, but making those phone calls and asking those questions, uh, that we had a, there, there was, I think, um, 
one of the things that we did to make sure that, that we were doing the data right, because I'm not a data scientist, right? And, and I, I've worked with statisticians, but uh, enough to know that I'm not one. Uh, so what we did was we put together a group, I think it was about 20 people, uh, who was a, they, they were a peer review committee, just to look at the data quality. Number the, the, the thing that we said was like, are we asking the right questions? Are we capturing the right categories? How would you change the categories? Which is how we got that question about meds, by the way. Um, you know, are they on their meds? Are they off their meds? Uh, and we made sure that that group was as diverse politically as we could find. To my, you know, great disappointment, we never actually got anybody from Black Lives Matter. We really wanted to have somebody who was involved with Black Lives Matter to come on. But we got a lot of people who were sort of on that spectrum. Sure. And we got a lot of people who were, you know, I, we actually had a couple of actual police data scientists. And then there were a bunch of people in the middle, people from the information security industry. Uh, you know, so we, we had a good, really... Good at forensics. Good at, good at understanding just data capturing. Forgetting the forensics for a minute. It's just like, what do I need? What do I need to know? But, but the forensics are very useful when you're trying to figure out what to go measure. Oh, for sure. If, for you're, sure. if you're like, well, I know you're going to get bad data out of this type of yeah. metric. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. We also, um, one, of the, one of the biggest first questions that we had is how do we clean the data? Like, what, what's the time? When do we start to throw it out? Uh, when, when is data not reliable enough? And and so in the book we we talk about the the methodology that we use. That's a big for, chunk of the book, actually. Yeah, because we wanted people to understand where this data is. I'm a white Texas cop. You had to give, <laughs> you had to give context. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, I really did. And, uh, no, I think that was important. Um, I didn't gloss over that section because I felt like every kind of block of text there was. Uh, probably uh, 50 hours of conversations yeah. to explain why it's like, ah, oh, okay. You had to Thank you for it. noticing. <laughs> I mean, well, it was clear. It's like, whoa, that would probably took a long time to decide to make that yeah. decision in one direction or another. And I didn't see anything ever other than, you know, funny examples like that. And the naming thing that I would shrug at. I mean, these are whenever you're dealing with kind of, raw text and photos and just kind of messy types of data. They're not yeah. well structured. You know, they're just handwritten notes or, you know, some kind of grainy cam yep. footage or yep. whatever. It's you're, you're having to do a ton of data cleanup and validation. So it makes sense that you would try to corroborate it with multiple sources and yeah. figure out, is this, is this really the data I'm looking at? Or is this, you know, it could be a typo too. You know, people could easily yes. mess up. Uh, so it's not even like you're dealing with clean, good data. You could be dealing yeah. with unclean, bad data. And so there's a, there's all kinds of weird stuff like that. There is. And, and we, we had, we had some, some real problems with finding a lot of times we, we were relying on, on all these databases that are public are relying on media reports to to bring in the the initial candidates and take a look at them. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there's three ways that those could be jacked up. The first one is an enumerate reporter uh, if they're trying to make some you know some kind of conclusion about data uh, and they just don't know how to do it. you know they they take a spreadsheet and sort by race like that's just really the worst way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is politically motivated or dogmatic reporting. Uh, subjective reporting, like The Guardian, where they have, they have an opinion. It's, it's considered over there legitimate reporting. I, I'm, I'm less of a fan. It's mm -hmm. um, editorials. <laughs> it really is. And, and um, uh, I, I see some of this. I, I still see some of this. But the third way is people who are both enumerate and dogmatic. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then, then you get reporters like most of the investigative team at BuzzFeed. 
who are just so solid. Well, were so solid and so good. And those reporters fought the good fight and really understood the data that they were looking for. And, and it was well-sourced and it was well-analyzed. I, I hardly ever... And, and you know, e- even even cops who don't like talking to reporters will still talk to some of those reporters. Like, I can't, I'm thinking of Kendall Taggart, uh, who is just... She's a rock star. She's just fantastic because she really plays it straight. I think I've, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone say something nice about BuzzFeed reporting. It, it's only about... No, I did. I said the BuzzFeed investigative reporting team, and uh-huh. big, which, of course, they immediately disbanded. Yeah, right. Um, but... <laughs> But she, uh, Kendall did amazing work on uh, debtors' prisons in, in Texas, like debtors' jails. And it really found a story and, and, and really researched it well, right? So you want to you wanna really cultivate relationships with, with journalists who are actually doing the work and taking the time to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So um, you, we were friends. Yeah. Uh, I want to say that out loud for the people who are, you know, going to start hearing me get a little bit more. Now start pointed, me up. That's good. <laughs> well, look. So there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are from all over the spectrum. Sure. And I feel like they would think I'm doing a disservice by not asking more pointed questions that they have. Like, yeah. And so I'm just going to do it, but. Obviously, we're still friends. I would like to maintain <laughs> my friendship with you, but I. Yeah. But I. But I. These do are important questions to ask. This is actually why we wrote the book. One hundred percent. So one one of the questions that I hear over and over amongst my peer group, and is you and I actually had a thread about this uh, a couple of years back. I'm like, why isn't body cam one hundred percent always on? Every cop always has it. Why are we allowing cops to mow people down and turn their cameras off at the same time? Like, why is that a thing that society or or yeah. the law allows? And uh, great so, question. Yeah. Um, so, I, I will push back on mow people down. Uh, <laughs> but this is no. But this I'm, is what I hear. From- hey, you, you got to ask it. I'm going to answer it. Right? <laughs> I'm pushing it back on mow people down. Sure. And, I, and and yeah. my statistics and and this. So my statistics have been quoted. I think in about 25 different other a- academic works. There's many more people who've done it since I did it. The statistics hold up, and 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 they're they're pretty good. So mowing down is 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 wrong, and I will actually come. Uh, please remind me to come back to that because I think it's really important. What we're looking for mm-hmm. when we say things like police are mowing people down. What we are looking for as a society, and me too, we are looking to understand why the relationships between the police and the communities they police and the communities they protect is so bad. Fragmented, yeah. And we have decided that a proxy is police killings, and I'm going to tell you that that's wrong, and it's stupid, and there's much better data out there. So, and I'll I'll come back to it. But um, I... Personally, I bought my first body camera in 2010 with my personal money mm. because I agree that that thing should be recorded. And in 2015, which if people, I'm not sure if people remember, 2015 was the year of, of uh, Walter Scott. 2015 was the year of Michael Brown. 2015 was the year of a lot of very, very high profile uh, cases. And um, <laughs> Twenty-five percent of the cases that year were on video, and those were the only cases that were prosecuted. That was an observation of Walter Katz, who was the citizen oversight commissioner in San Jose at that time. That tells you how important video is. Without it, you're not getting anywhere. You're not going to get a cop to be held accountable. Whether the, whether it was justified or not, you won't be able to have the conversation unless there's video. So video is right. really important. So you agree that the cops should wear them when yes. they're in doing an actual yes 
pull, pulling someone over, for instance. Uh, any 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 encounter. The, most encounters with the public should be recorded. Um, it's really hard for me to sit here today after we've just seen what happened. Was it in Seattle where the the guy was talking about uh, a woman who had been. Uh, hit and killed by a police vehicle and he was apparently and it sure sounded like it to me mocking her death and making comments like oh yeah just write him a check oh she she wasn't that old she you know she wasn't worth that much money i mean it was just it was horrific wow and this was accidentally recorded by his body camera that was running in the police car Mm -hmm. all right so it's hard for me to say you know, you're not going to catch anything because I would never say something that dumb. Mm-hmm. But I am going to say that there are certain there are certain things that should not be uh, recorded, and I I think that reasonable people, when you come to it, uh, when when reasonable people discuss it and actually get the context again, most people don't understand policing. They understand policing as done on police shows. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand the operational differences between what actually happens in policing and what happens on Blue Bloods. Mm-hmm. Um, if a family member of yours has been sexually assaulted and I come there as the investigator to have a conversation about the sexual assault, I don't think that you or your family member want that to be recorded uh, unless it's a formal interview, right? But if I'm coming into your house, I'm showing your house. This person is talking about many, many of these videos are subject to FOIL requests. I actually think that there are some exceptions there. If I walk into a house and there are small children, if I walk into a house and there are vulnerable people, um, if I'm conducting a, an interview with, for example, uh, a witness to a crime, I might, they might not want their, themselves talking to the police to be on a video that ultimately gets up on the television. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to be. If I'm speaking with an undercover informant, if I'm speaking, uh, if I'm speaking about a sensitive case, or an open investigation. There's, there's times that are legitimately you, you want to protect against. Mm. Uh, I also don't think that many people want to listen to me taking a crap. I, I just don't think that my bodily functions have anything to do with the public interest. Mm. So if I'm talking to my wife, that's a private phone call. That's, that's something that, you know, if, I, if I'm having an intimate personal conversation, I mean, we all have intimate personal conversations at work. To say that every minute of every day that a police officer is, is working is open and public record, I think it's not realistic, and I also think that it's not fair. We wouldn't do that to nurses. We wouldn't do it to doctors. We wouldn't do it to you. So, you know, I, I just think that there's a lot of reasons why there are areas that should be limited. Mm-hmm. Technology, has, uh, technology has helped, but unfortunately you end up in monopolistic things that Axon which used to be called Taser uh, clearly lead in the body camera business there's several other good brands Um, but uh, they back in 2010 2011 when I was first talking to them they were discussing a trigger uh, where when they when when somebody drew a weapon or somebody drew a taser Mm -hmm. uh, that the camera would turn on no matter what and I'm going to give you an idea you've You've done a lot of training, so you're gonna you'll understand this. Uh, let me let me tell you about my my first time. Uh, I was in a car chase, and that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the guy was running. He had he had assaulted uh, a citizen, and and he had got got into his car and he ran and and got into his car and drove away. And we're chasing him, and I mean we we don't know anything about this guy. We don't know where he's going. And he gets out of the car. He gets out of his car. He ditches the car. And he's running towards the house. I don't know why he's running towards the house. I don't know if he had any guns in the car in Texas everybody can have a gun in the car Mm -hmm. so we don't know anything right all we know is this guy assaulted somebody because we saw this happen and then we we were right there 
He stops the car. He bails out of the car. He's running towards the house. We get out of the car. I am now worried about myself, my partner. I'm worried about a lot of people. I'm not thinking about turning on my body camera. I'm thinking about not dying. I'm thinking about, and I, I considered that, that first experience of mine, I considered it to be a major, major victory that when my partner tackled the guy, I had the presence of mind, and this is not something I would want to count on, to holster my gun and take out my taser so that I had a non-deadly weapon mm -hmm. in my hand. Things happen under stress sure. that cannot be dissected at a dining room table. So th yeah. that's why they shouldn't be on. That's why, uh, that, that's, that's why it's, not a, it's not an immediate so, uh, source of suspicion if they're not on. And we should turn them on. I believe that we should have them as much as possible. We should have technology that does turn them on. Now, there was a, a talk at DEF CON this year about hacking and going after police departments who were using that Bluetooth standard to turn on the camera. That's really important. We have to protect the, the officers. We have to protect everybody, right? So, so that technology right now is not particularly safe, but it's really good as a direction for the technology to go to make it so that cops don't have to think, by the way, if I'm in my police car and I turn on my lights, not even my siren, just my lights, the cameras all go on. Yeah, but, but also it'd be nice if the body cam went on. It would I mean? be... It, it yeah. would be great yeah. nowadays it does but mm. back you know yeah. back in when we were talking about it didn't sure but yeah I agree with you and I think body cameras are really important by the way you know the amount of body camera footage that's been used to prosecute cops I have no idea 8%, 8 percent which tells you that 92% of the body <laughs> video is being used to prosecute yeah. those who are shouting that cops should have body uh, just it, it's yeah. it's Two sides of the same coin. Hillary Clinton, of all people, said this best. She said it protects people on both sides of the lens. That does mean that it cuts both ways. Sure, absolutely. And it should catch... It, it, I had a podcast called Quality Policing where Peter Moskos and I would only talk about bad policing. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I want to see police officers who are criminal or, or even, <laughs> even just disrespectful people yeah. who are making yeah, the, the profession to retrain them yeah yeah I, but i want to see them called out for bad behavior i want to see the bad behavior stop so one of the things that came up this is maybe a couple of years back now uh was the ability for cops to review the footage before yeah. they gave their testimony yeah so what's your opinion on that so it's actually it's somewhat different it's not it's not about giving testimony it's about writing reports sure yeah and i mentioned walter katz a little earlier and walter i I love this man. This is a this is a guy who was a public defender. Then he was a citizen oversight commissioner. This guy understands the mechanics at work. He understands the politics. He so the third biggest agency in the country. Sorry, New York, L.A. LA, LA Sheriff, Chicago. Yeah, third biggest in the country. Uh, L.A. Sheriff's office. He managed to convince the union at the LA Sheriff's Office that the proper way, the, the, the choices that you have here are, I get back to the station, I have to type up a report so I can look at my video, I can see what happened, then I can type up my report. Or I can type up my report, hit save, it goes into that system. Mm -hmm. I now, now that's immutable from my perspective. Right. Now I can watch the video and I can see if I forgot something or if I got a detail wrong. And if I forgot something or if I got a detail wrong or I want to add something. Yeah, embellish, yeah. I can go, I hope not embellish, but certainly <laughs> clarify. I can go back in and I can make a supplemental report. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first one is watch, write, and the second one is write, watch, amend. Yeah. And Walter convinced the union that it was better for the police to do write, watch, amend. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. It took a long time because it's counterintuitive. Yeah. It makes it so that 
you use your best recollection as an officer. You are trained to recall, you are trained to observe, and you are trained to write and record your observations. That you should write those observations as you remember it. I remember I said the legal standard of Graham versus Connor is what I was thinking. If you can't articulate what you were thinking at the time, that's a problem. This articulable, these articulable facts are actually what you're being paid to to record and, and remember. So, yeah, you should write it, and then you should go and take a look at it, and then you should come back and amend. Here's what that fixes. It fixes any hint that in writing my report, I was adapting my language of the report to accommodate, at the time I was writing the report, behavior that I saw that might be questioned. Right. And that's great. I think that that shouldn't be possible, and it's very simple to fix. You write your report, you watch the video, and then you amend your report if you Absolutely. need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I, I have a feeling that's going to keep happening, where people are going to question it until that becomes a standard. People are going to question it anyway. Well, but it's a little different if if you were forced to give the first reaction and you said, oh, I, uh, he had a gun. And then <laughs> and you look at it and it's like, he didn't even have his hands up. You know, yeah. like, what are you talking about? And by like, the way, this this was what happened with, uh, what was the name, Michael Slager, who shot and assassinated and murdered Walter Scott? Hmm. Yeah. He fired a gun at an unarmed running man and then said, oh, he had my taser and walked over with the full intent of framing that guy, right? Yep. Thank God there was a guy walking by with video. Thank God, because right. that, was, that was an assassination. Right. We, na- we saw it as a nation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, another one I think that comes up quite often is uh, you know, being pulled over while black, but I, I think I could extrapolate that and make it more more realistic actually which is being pulled over while poor because what what really happens like I, I noticed this I was driving along one day and I had like a fast pass or something and I'm I'm driving through traffic and just you know it's absolute standstill everyone's over there in a parking lot and I'm just cruising by everybody back in Austin and uh and I just had this kind of weird sense that, like, I'm not going to get into an accident because I, there's nobody in front of me. There's nobody behind me. I'm just cruising. But if I'm over there, the chances of me being in an accident go up dramatically. You know, yeah. Just little fender benders, but yeah. still, but still. Yeah. And it's going to knock out a taillight maybe or something and, or, you know, mess it up and, you know, maybe my license plate falls off or something. And, and now I've got to fix my car. But maybe I don't have enough money to fix my car. And so maybe I just kind of let it slide. Like, uh, I'll, you know, my paycheck's coming up next month. I'll just... You know, whatever. And meanwhile, you know, I get I get pulled over because you know I have a broken taillight or my license plate's missing or whatever. And now I'm like trying to deal with new fines on top of the fact that I can't really pay for what I've already you know messed up. And it all stems from them not having a fast pass and being over with me. Yeah. You know, being able to bypass traffic. Actually, it all stems from them being poor. <clears throat> yeah, which ultimately comes from being poor. So I think the the amount of police encounters go up dramatically based on how much money you have. Yes, they do. Um, <clears throat> which I think, you know, while we could say that that is, that meets certain demographics, I think even if you just abstract that a little bit and just say poor people are more likely to have negative encounters with the police. Poor poor people overall are more likely to have encounters with the police. And therefore negative encounters. And they're more likely to have negative encounters. Um, and they're more likely to get stuck into that cycle of debt. That, that spiral of debt that you just described. Right. I wrote an article about this for the Washington Post uh, comparing... I mean, exactly this and, and why it was. And, and, and I think that this is not a policing problem. This is actually a societal problem in the United States. Um, the enumerate people at 
ProPublica or the enumerate the enumerate reporters at ProPublica made a claim that has just it just doesn't die, which is that if you are black, you are seven times more likely to be shot by a police officer than a white person. That's not quite true. Um, they're basing that on the 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 overall representation of of black people in as a part of American society, um, and the the overall representation of black people amongst those who have been killed by police. Um, about I think. Last time I looked, as about, opposed to what should it have about been, thirty percent of the people who got killed by police were black, which is you know that seems really disproportionate when twelve percent of Americans are black, mm-hmm. about six percent of of Americans are black males, mm-hmm. uh, and and pr- black males are predominantly included in this group of people killed by police. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take a look at the poverty statistics, it's about thirty percent black and about seventy percent white. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's not a coincidence. Right. That that is absolutely not a coincidence. Um, and and why is that? I mean, is it is it what I've just described, driving while black, or is it uh, is it something more like you're more likely to be involved with drugs if you're poor, or you're more likely to have uh, have criminal enterprise if you're poor? Like, what what is it about being poor that you think causes these interactions? So I think that poor people have fewer opportunities, and um, if you are an honest poor person and you are really struggling to get by. Um, these are the people, we, we all know people like this. They have two or three jobs, and they are you know, racing around, constantly running to do things, and they're taking care of their family. Um, the society in, in most states is, is actually quite skewed against their success. Um, in all of the red states, and I'm not, this is not a political statement, it's just in red states tend to have fines and fees associated with traffic infractions uh, much more than blue states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Texas is, is, a, is a prime example, right? Um, the fine for, uh, the fine for, uh, for example, a, bro- a broken taillight, broken headlight, um, if you can show that it's been fixed, you know, they'll wipe the fine off if you bring back in 10 days or it's like, it's like a $30 ticket. The fine for driving on a suspended license is about $200. If you don't pay it, then those fines double and your license gets suspended, right? Again, and, and you, have, you have to go back. So um, if you're working several jobs and you're running around, you're more likely to get a speeding ticket. If you're poor working several jobs, you're less likely to be able to pay that original speeding ticket. You're more likely to get suspended. Once you get suspended, the next time you get stopped, you're going to get another ticket. You're going to go into a cycle of debt. The only way to get out of that, and, and this is some of the stuff that Kendall Taggart was talking about, was to go sit in jail. Right. So it becomes illegal to be poor. It becomes illegal to be poor. Yeah. Um, we found that yeah, black women are black women are getting uh, something like one hundred and eighty three dollars more um, in fines than than white white drivers, hmm. uh, more than more than Hispanic drivers as well, uh, who also had higher fees. You know, that's that these is people that tend just working moms to just being on the road too much. Um, like it's. I haven't done the demography. I don't. I don't yeah. have the data. I can just tell you that that we in the in the the article that I'm talking about, which I hope you can link to, sure. um, that was a that was a study of a city where uh, most of the citations that were written were written at the at the road leading directly to a very large naval base, which had a huge number of low paying jobs. Mm-hmm. So these were honest people trying to work and trying to do the right thing, and you know, legislatures have decided that when you don't pay something, you have to suspend your license. And, and so, and, and police are left. There's, there's nothing to do 
right? You, you either write the ticket or take them to jail. You can literally have to take somebody to jail if, they, if they've just gone through and there's all these warrants out for their arrest. That's not a police problem. That's actually a societal problem. How do they get poor? Why are they, why are they poor? Well, it, yeah, you know. okay. So I, I certainly agree with that last part, but I think that there's this whole concept that I think a lot of people really hate, which is legislating from the bench. You know, you don't want a judge to inter to create law by virtue of always deciding that this crime is illegal or this crime is no. But is you'd not like legal. a feedback loop. You'd like the yeah. legislators who are going to buy we, gum get tough on these people to actually listen to the judges who are. But 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 there's an analogy here. Um, I talked about this a little bit with uh, with uh, Frank uh, Artez. Yeah. Uh, uh, also a former police officer. And, um, I mean, is there a way, and I think as a peace officer in Texas, as, a, as opposed to a police officer, uh, where you're just trying to, you're trying to keep the peace, really what's the harm in letting that person go with a, with a slap on the wrist? Like, please ah, go get this thing fixed. Yeah. So like policing is really interesting. By the way, I don't, I don't understand the distinction between peace officer and well, police he, he officer brought, in Texas. Cause he, a peace officer is a police or police officer is a peace officer. Uh, well, he was saying, uh, I'm taking Frank's word. For sure. Me. Sure. Uh, but he was saying that the, the most important part is that they get to decide whether this person's a threat to the public. Oh, sure. There is, yes, there is, there's a lot of discretion. And by the way, therein lies a lot of the problems that we've been discussing Mm -hmm. is that most cops work alone and most cops work, uh, at their discretion. Mm -hmm. Um, when I recognized in my city that we had a problem, this is not the city I, you know, currently I'm sworn in, but this is a different one. (laughs) when I did an analysis of, of the people who went to warrant for not paying their, their traffic tickets, what I found was that blacks were significantly overrepresented. That black males were significantly overrepresented. And I realized that what we were doing was contributing to a, a real spiral, right? If we are writing tickets, um, then those tickets, we, and we're pretty sure that those tickets aren't going to get paid, then that's just going to make more warrants for this person. By the time you owe $900 in warrants, you're not paying any warrants, right? right? I've seen people with ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 worth of warrants. By the way, the, the way Texas courts typically handle this is they give you $100 against the money you owe for every day you spend in jail. Hmm. That's insane, but, right. but that's the way it works, right? So... So it's just easier I, to I, spend some time in jail. Well, but then, but then I, I've had a, people show up at the jail with toothbrush, flip-flops, and magazines, and they're like, okay, I'm ready to sit out my time. i got a job starting in two weeks. I want to get this behind me. How does that help anybody? It doesn't help them sitting in jail. That certainly no. doesn't help the community, which is paying, last time I looked, about $130 a day to keep them in jail, to give them credit of $100 a day. They didn't pay the original ticket, so that's $1,000. Everybody loses here. Mm-hmm. I, I, this whole fine-day well, system. And, and also, now they have a criminal record. So that'll, yes. that'll haunt them on future jobs going forward. Yeah. So it's... But, but if I were to tell you... Mm-hmm that I have decided not to give tickets to young black men. How would you feel? Is that, is that also, is that, is that a reasonable policy? Obviously not, but I would say... But wait, wh- where do you go from but, here? But, like, I, but, <laughs> but, I would, but I would say that if you can tell that someone's just, you know, a working mom, just trying to get to work, you know, she's not harming anybody. 
do we really need to give her an actual ticket or just say, look, if I see this, if I see you on the road with this car again, I'll give you a ticket. So go get I have no opinion. I, I really? To, yeah, no opinion? Uh, no opinion on that one. I, oh. I think that it's a, per, I have personal opinions, but, I, but I, <laughs> here, here's what I do think. Okay. Um, it's generally accepted and there's not enough evidence for me to, to go much farther than just say it's generally accepted that traffic stops, generally speaking, are a good way to show a police presence and reduce crime in certain communities. It, it yeah. just is. Uh-huh. Um, drunk driving enforcement uh, in, in the city where I'm currently sworn as a reserve detective, that, that really is something that um, has reduced deaths in our city measurably over the past 15 years, and we can point to it. Uh, stopping people and talking to them is actually important. Uh, it's terrible to be the person being stopped and talked to, mm-hmm. but you know what? The more you do that, you're, the more your city gets... There, there's a, there is a lot of uh, a work, and, and uh, Frank Zimmering's book on uh, the, the Great Crime Drops talks a little bit about community policing and what it, what it means to be actually making contact and, and its, its crime-reducing effect. That doesn't require that you write a citation. Uh, I don't care if they write the citation or if they simply write a warning. What I do care is that they write... A something because if I stop you and I don't give you a citation I want a written record of that stop I've already called into dispatch so this is a computer-aided dispatch thing but I want a written record that says what the disposition of that case was and here's why I want to go back a year later at that same officer and I want to take a look if he's only giving warnings to certain kinds of people and I want to use that as a training opportunity I can't do that if we don't keep the data mm-hmm. and while we are awash in data in law enforcement, what we don't have, it vastly outweighs what we do have. Interesting. So I think we should probably also talk about the actual stops themselves. Sure. Um, and I, I know you've written some about this as well, but like, I, I suspect a lot of people feel like it's a bit of a massive power play. I mean, not just because this person's armed, you know, they can also completely disrupt your entire future. Like those moments are so stressful and dangerous on both sides. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not claiming there's a one-sided situation here, but I think also a lot of people are like, well, why do I have to be nice? Why do, why is that? I don't think you have to be nice. Yeah. Well, um, because the, it cha- it dramatically changes the interaction if you're if you're not nice, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, like I have to go out of my way to be nice to somebody who's impeding me for maybe something I didn't even do. I, I'm I'm just trying to get to work here, you mm-hmm. know. And now I'm going to be delayed and 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 maybe have my life taken from me if yeah. things go terribly wrong. Sure. So like, how do you how do you talk to the general public and say here's here's why you should interact with the police and in here's what way. So being polite is not necessarily being nice. Sure. And that's what I mean by you don't necessarily have to be nice. I don't, I don't think that you should be asking about the officer's kids or whether he's having a tough shift. shift. It, it's just wrong, right? And I also don't think that the officers should be in any way unprofessional or discourteous. Um, I'm now, of course, thinking of uh, Michael, what is his name, Insinia, the, the, the guy who stopped uh, and, and arrested Sandra Brown. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, that was Zimmerman. No, no, no it was no. it was Insinia. Okay, but Brian Insinia, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but but I do think that um, th- there are certain things that are going on. The first thing I I recommend is, regardless of whether it's okay to get stopped, um, I'd like to come out of a, a stop being alive. 
Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> I really, I really think that that's important, and I think that while, as I say, between forty and sixty million face-to-face encounters between police every year, right? The, the numbers, the chance that that something is going to happen is actually very low, like a deadly encounter, um, which which hover every year at around fifteen hundred. Yeah, we were talking about this a little off camera before we yeah. started. Um, why is that an important number? I think it's important to remember for a number of different reasons that 40 to 60 million times a year are 40 to 60 million interhuman, interpersonal contacts between two people who are both having a day. Could be a good day, could be a bad day. They could both be having a good day, they could both be having a bad day. One of them could have it, right? But you can talk about implicit bias training all you want. The fact of the matter is, there's no panacea here. You're dealing with human beings talking to human beings. And some human beings are jerks, and some human beings are nice. Some people are kind, some people are mean. Some people are on drugs. Some people are on drugs. Or crazy. Um, 52% (laughs) of the unarmed people who died in 2011 were either uh, intoxicated on alcohol or narcotics um, or having a mental health breakdown uh, or, or physically handicapped or a combination of those things. That's more than half. Mm-hmm. Right? So this, this is a very important part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, when, when you have these 40 to 60 million encounters, you can't find a blanket thing that's going to fix them all. And some training will work for some people, but it's not going to work for everybody. So training is not the answer. Training is important, but it doesn't fix all of the ills. So the second thing is, for the past 20 years, Every single year, there has been about 1,500 people who die after a police encounter. This is not 1,500 black people. This is not, you know, this is 1,500 people. And of those, about 1,200 are shot. And the rest are, you know, some, there's some other thing that happens. Like grappling or something. Or they just had a heart attack because the reason that the police called was because they took, they took meth or flaca and they were running down the street naked, breaking car windows, and they were bleeding out by the time the police got there. Or the police got there and they had a known heart condition, and yet they still fought the officer and kept on fighting and fighting and fighting until the handcuffs were on, and then they had a heart attack, right? There's a lot of ways that people die after police encounters. It's not just police killing them sure. or police murdering them, right? Um, so... Of those, you know, of those twelve hundred, uh, of of those fifteen hundred who die, the the Washington Post said ninety percent had engaged right before in an overt act of violence. They had a gun, they had a knife, they were brandishing, they were doing something, they were hurting somebody. Right, nine in ten, there was some reason that the police were engaging with them. Mm-hmm. That still leaves. 10%. That's not a small number. Right. That's about 150, right? So like so th- but these numbers are static, which tells me a couple of things. It tells me that even despite all of the intense media scrutiny, that number hasn't changed. Even before there was media scrutiny, when people weren't noticing, that number didn't go up. That sounds like the base number that uh, of people in our society. Who was the guy in in Pennsylvania last week uh, who was on the run for for 13 days? Yeah, right. Cavill <laughs> whatever. Guy was a stone killer. He had killed two different people that we know about, right? He, he escaped. He was living on his wits. He was running around. He was going into people's houses, stole a rifle, 
said to the police that he was going to carjack a car to try to... This guy needs to be in prison. There are many people who need to be in prison. And you can talk all you want about defunding and, you know, maybe he shouldn't... There are people you want in prison. Not everybody is a, is a nice person. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you can't... There are cops who are complete jerks, like I talked about Michael Slager, the guy who assassinated Walter Scott. That guy had no business being a cop. You've got guys who, you've got cops who show up when somebody is actively shooting. Boy, is everybody happy to see. Even in Die Hard, the guy was like, wow, I never thought I'd be happy to hear that that sound, right, when the cops are coming. Like, there are times in all of our lives when we're happy that somebody with a gun is there to actually protect us from the other people with a gun. Okay, so but what about militarization? Because I think that's another big thing. Yeah. You know, if, you know, there's many countries where people are not allowed to have guns on their, uh, you know, as part of their, part yeah. of their kit or whatever. So, um, so therefore you're going to see a lot less shootings by yeah. that cohort of police officers because they just don't have guns. Yeah. So if we give someone a rocket launcher, I bet rocket launcher deaths would go up. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like with, with the tools they're given, um, interestingly you, suppressor deaths haven't gone like deaths deaths from firearms with suppressors that, are, that have suppressors on them haven't gone up yeah they have not right uh, but, but my point I think is somewhat valid if we see if we see that the police are now armed with more and more uh, interesting ways to kill people those mm-hmm. interesting ways of killing people are going to be used similarly if we remove them Th- then taser deaths will probably go up or you know grappling deaths will go up or whatever right mm-hmm. you'll see some change in in the demographic of how someone dies mm-hmm. um so first of all what do you think about police militarization but then the follow-on is what do you think about uh be- there being an effort to make people stop using like chokehold restraints Wow. Okay. So there's a lot there. Um, I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's kind of one um, congruent thought, but it's... And, and Radley Balco and I, who used to talk, and now we don't, because we've had an argument about this very thing, mm. um, is sort of on the... And his book is excellent. Uh, his book on police militarization is really excellent. I recommend that people read it. It's, it's good. Um, he, uh, he represents people who believe that, that the... the what we're talking about is basically a sale to local law enforcement agencies of surplus military gear like Bearcats. Sure. Um, uh, I, to my knowledge, there has not been a an attendant rise in um, uh, other weaponry. Well, um, certainly after the movie Heat came out, uh, we definitely saw police vehicles with rifles as opposed to shotguns. Sure. And mine had both. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's there's a time for that. So the rifles, the rifles that that I carry was an AR, uh, but but it was an AR-15. It was not it was not, not a, militarized. You know, so it it did not have select fire. It was not able to to fire any kind of burst or anything like that. It was you know a semi-automatic mm-hmm. rifle. Um, something you might get at a at a normal gun sh- gun shop. Or something. something. Well, yes, I, I I splurged and I got a Noveski, but yes, okay. yes, <laughs> one might one might just go down to their local gun store and, and buy the AR, right? And this was, um, you you need special you need special training and authorization in order to carry that. You have to pass um, testing in order to be able to carry that and show proficiency with it and and regularly uh, show proficiency. Mm-hmm. So that there's. There is some training involved. Um, I have seen a very, very limited number of, of actual select fire, like 
automatic weapons mm-hmm. in law enforcement. These tend to be in in SWAT teams or you know some some sort of a special team. This is not this is absolutely not something that is a normal thing. I I, I think honestly it's been like five in my in, in what thirteen years I've seen five, um, and so the 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 rifles and shotguns they're they're pretty much the same. Uh, what I have seen is larger magazines. So my my current duty gun has, I think, a twenty round magazine. Um, that that has been, I think, in answer to civilian guns that have gotten more. You know, that that was New York City in the in the nineteen eighties when the New, when the New York City cops were carrying the the Colt six shooters and and people the criminals on the street were carrying nine millimeter Berettas and I think at that time it had like eleven or twelve rounds in the magazine. They're like, my God, we're hopelessly outgunned. I think that there's been an armed race going on. I don't see much change in that. I don't think think that that's actually related to militarization. Uh, the real question comes down is, does a cop need a Bearcat? Um, <laughs> does a cop need a uh, heavily armored vehicle? Which is a question that you ask until things like the the ISIS inspired shooting down in in Garland, Texas, or uh, you know San Bernardino, or any kind of big active shooter scene. When suddenly those things come in, um, and there's an argument to be made for them. Police don't have an ability to retreat. Really, um, they they have to protect people. Should but, should anyway. Well, they're supposed to, but I do find it really like a terrible, terrible, terrible look in Ferguson when we saw St. Louis County Police on top of Bearcats. I mean, that was just about as bad as you could possibly get in terms of what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have much more of an opinion on that other than I think, you know, I think when properly trained and properly overseen, tools are tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand that it's a that it's a strong debate, and I understand people have strong feelings about it. Okay, what about the chokeholds? So, um, you know, all right, murders against the law, and the last I checked, people still do it. There's a lot of things that are illegal. Making something illegal doesn't make it go away. Making it against policy doesn't really make it go away. I believe, and you mentioned a little bit earlier before, legislating from the bench, legislating from the comfort and luxury of your city council seat while the CNN cameras are on. You know, it might make you feel better, but it's really, it's really dangerous. Uh, most adult males in the United States have not had a fight since high school. I have very little time for a pasty 40-year-old somebody who has not actually been in harm's way at all and has not been in any kind of physical altercation to start to say what can be done in the heat of a fight not to say, you know, you should take every effort not to cut off somebody's oxygen. You should make, you, you must legally make sure that when somebody is, is uh, handcuffed, that they can breathe, that, that you are making sure that they can breathe. Like, these are really basic responsibilities of just human beings. But to say, you know, there, there were immediately after passing some of these restrictions and policy changes, there were cops who were losing their careers because somebody got into a fight with them and in trying to hold them, which by the way is actually what you want the cops to do in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases you want the cop to show up and help when somebody is physically threatening somebody or beating somebody up. You want the cop to be able to grab them not be so afraid of getting into a fight that they need to take out a weapon. That's a big finding in our book that younger cops are actually afraid to get hit in the face. And so they might reach for tools faster than older cops or actually, believe it or not, combat veterans. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of things going on here, but there are cops who are losing pension careers, uh, even if it's just vacation days, getting in trouble 
because they might have moved their arm in a certain way in trying to hold somebody in, in a moment or where there's a lot of chaos going on. Yeah. How long did the chokehold last? I mean, like there's a, there's a lot of questions to ask that are not immediately obvious from no, you can't use chokeholds. Um, and, and those things, I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier, right? I mean, I, I look at San Francisco and I think of San Francisco as, as really sort of unfortunate because it, since they don't give tasers to the officers, or at least they didn't last time I checked, the officers really have just a couple of tools to use, right? They've got their hands and now you're, you're sort of limiting what they can do with their hands. They've got a stick or pepper spray, and then they've got a gun. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing in between. I don't think that that's the time to start limiting force options. <laughs> I really don't. Right. I mean, more tools are better, frankly. More tools that are, you know, you need oversight, you need training. Those body cameras are going to really help about when somebody, you know, I'd like to also know when somebody is taking out different tools. I'd like to know when pepper spray is used. Uh, there's no there's no way at scale across the country to figure out did somebody deploy pepper spray is a cop being a jerk with pepper spray is the, did a cop tase somebody that we don't know about did they drive stun them so they didn't have to replace the cartridge they just you know they were just hurting like we don't know these things i'd like to know more of these things well out of curiosity i mean you your book's been out for a couple of years now <laughs> it's uh, been out for like six years yeah so so did you get any feedback from the local law enforcement where they're like, this is a good idea. We should probably start making our metrics look more like this so that we can track it going forward as opposed to making this huge manual exercise uh, you know, a year later or two years later or whenever the investigators go back and take a look at it. Just doing it in real time saying, you know, please fill in these forms so we have uh, an ongoing database that's much more... Uh, useful for doing this type of metrics. So while I would love to take credit for it, there's been a lot of advances since then, and it's still a complete dog's dinner. Um, Certain states have taken initiatives. Texas is fantastic with with officer use of force. Um, Florida's done some some stuff. Uh, A lot of times, certain other regulations get in the way of capturing this kind of data. data, The things that happen that that make it harder. Um, The FBI has upped its game uh, and and the the new way of counting crime uh, is is starting to take more police use of force into into account. Um, I think the Washington the institutionalization of the Washington Post as a as an actual national public service mm-hmm. um, has has taken on a, a, a great deal of Im- importance in the uh, in the world of academia. Um, th- there's still not enough academics who are reporting on these things. Um, Roland Fryer. Is is one uh, who has been excoriated by by progressives because he didn't find, and I, I was a victim of this too. When when you find things that progressives don't like, they get mad at you and they don't like you. Um, similarly, when you find things that that conservatives don't like, they get mad at you and they don't like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of um, I think unfair criticism of people who are looking into an issue that really hasn't been looked into enough. Mm-hmm. We need more um, we need more data. I did get a lot of departments telling me that they were very uh, interested in the data. They were very interested in... Did I ask you the question or did you you read... I hope maybe you didn't read this. I'll just ask you the question and see. I just asked this to a friend last night uh, and and I got... It was a friend not in law enforcement and they they responded exactly as predicted. I've mentioned to you that out of the 1,500 or so uh, people who died after... Uh, uh, an incident law enforcement they in 2015 uh, 153 we identified as people who were unarmed at the time of mm-hmm. this of this encounter um, you haven't been in law enforcement yeah. so of that 153 what percentage would you think 
was unjustified? Um, well, I think I've heard you possibly use this number before, but eight uh, percent. So that's is, is, the, <laughs> is, the magic, is the magic number. But if I but if I didn't know that, yeah, if you number, didn't know the answer, if I didn't know the number, I'd say probably thirty is would have been my guess. I'm really happy you said. All right, so most people who haven't been in law enforcement guess between twenty five and fifty, hmm. um, or they'll say all, right? Oh, and yeah, like that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they might mean it. Um, most cops will say one percent or two percent. Interesting. It tells me that both sides are not listening to the data. It tells me that both sides are just letting their dogma drive 100%. Their, their opinions. And, right. and, and when you, so when you believe that, you end up in confirmation bias where you only hear the facts that agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, I, I, I threatened to do this earlier, okay. so I'll say this. All right. What we want to know is are we being policed fairly? We want to know are our police being, being held accountable for their actions? Are they treating our community appropriately are they telling the truth yeah. are they um are they being fair are they protecting me or are they hurting me this is what we want to know that's that's the fundamental question that we're asking mm-hmm. and as i said most people get their knowledge about policing from cop shows so the thing that you see on cop shows is the thing that you know i've never shot anybody i've never shot my gun uh you know, I, I mean i i know very few cops who've actually shot somebody or, or gotten into a deadly encounter so uh, and I know a lot of cops. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe it's not the killings. Since on the first day of the academy, people tell you, you know, if you kill somebody, you're going to spend the next three to five years in lawsuits and fighting for your job. And you know, there's there's cops who were okay and did the right thing, and they still can't be cops anymore because they use deadly force. We know it's going to be investigated. This is like the this is the. To the extent that, you know, you can always talk about corruption. You can say, yeah, sometimes you get it. But if there is one thing that you know you're going to be investigated over, it's going to be shooting at somebody. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the wrong place to look. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we're looking to see if we're policed fairly. Maybe if we're looking to understand why people really feel that the cops are against them. Maybe we should start looking at the use of non-deadly force. And I think that that is really important because I think that the best way to get somebody to not like police is to humiliate them repeatedly. I think that the way to make them not like me as a police officer is for me to slap them or push them or drag them out of the car in front of their friends and search them and handcuff them and make them stand on the street behind their car so that every passing motorist can see them while I wait for the tow truck to come and take his car away. Or pull his pants down searching for drugs on the street. Or There's a lot of things that I can do that are mean and are unnecessary. And I think that they involve humiliation and I think that they involve power plays and I think that they involve all these things which you mentioned even earlier as the thing that people are worried about. That's what I think is important to look into, non-deadly force. Mm. And there are no statistics on non-deadly force. There's no way, because of what we talked about earlier, that police often work alone and police work at their own discretion. So we're uh, we're coming up on time. I promised we'd make this one a quick one because I know you got other things going on. <laughs> yeah, but I won't stop talking. <laughs> I know, I know, but I, but I but I wanted to get to this question, and I think it's an important one. I'd be really curious to hear what you think. We keep talking about defunding the police, and uh-huh. if removing 
ideally, I think the the goal for people who like this idea is you remove police officers entirely, you yeah. get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, is really what they're after. Sure. Um, but I had the kind of curious thought, like, what would happen if we dramatically increased the budget? Not necessarily the amount of police officers. Um, that's not what I'm just saying. But any individual police officer doubling their pay rate or mm-hmm. tripling it. So it becomes a really good job that people will desperately try to keep, just like you would in an executive position at some big company or something. So you no longer are getting kind of people who just kind of, I wouldn't say fall into it, but you know they have 20 things they could go do and uh, please sounds good or whatever. This is like, I want to get into this because this is a real career and I will make a ton of money and my family will live well mm-hmm. and all that stuff. If you changed it into much more of like a, I don't know, something that everyone can, beyond the act itself of pride, like I, like I am, this is an insanely good job. Mm-hmm. I make really good money and I'm doing something good for the community. Pe- I think people would be very hesitant to slap someone on the street, just in the same way I wouldn't do that in a corporate job. <clears throat> I can also slap people in a corporate setting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to do that because I lose my job and probably get sued. And, <laughs> and, and yet we see this all the time. And yet, whenever there's a, a blow-up on an airplane, it's some overpaid executive doing something horrible. And, and of course, later they'll say that they were on drugs. And, yeah, and that's know, the cocaine the talk. <laughs> but, 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 so, so, you know, I, I love the idea, and I'm going to say, you know... I think it'd be worth a try. So, I don't think it's necessary. I know cops, literally, I know cops who have taken a pay cut from Walmart to be a cop. I know cops who took pay, pay cuts from bartending jobs to be a cop. Cop Policing is a calling. Policing is something, and this is really difficult to believe, when, especially when people have terrible relations. People who become cops do not do it for the money. Most people who become cops, if you ask them why they're doing it, they say because they want to help people. Most cops will go out of their way to try to help people until conditions change and you know there, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons why this changes over time um it, it's it's really really hard to explain the amount of personal pride that goes into wanting to be a police officer and believing that that is the right calling it's similar to it's similar in fact to nursing it's similar in fact to a lot of uh, firefighting or one of those absolutely firefighting I mean this, running into a burning building and, and I did a talk to firefighters once and I was talking about saying safe online and I was like nobody hates you you run into burning buildings like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. no, this is half of this doesn't even apply to them yeah. right but, but it is the same idea that these kinds of service professions. So I don't think that I don't actually think that uh, the money would change things. Most cops make a pretty good living. Most cops. I kind of figured you'd say this, okay. um, which is interesting because well, that means that there's sort of like this uh, this elastic band um, yeah. where you can let it out as big as you want, but you can only pull it so tight. Yeah. Like there's this there's this point, and you know, when people were talking about defunding the police and when Chaz was happening and, yeah. you know, <laughs> all this stuff, it, I could sense from the police officers I hang out with, it, it was no longer a, a calling that they enjoyed. It was, it was yeah. like a, it was a very, very tough time on them. And I, I'm kind of curious how you feel about that. I, I, I understand it. And I was, I got out just at the exactly the right time. Um, you know, I'm still technically sworn. I, 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 I volunteer. I'm a reserve officer, right? I'm I'm sworn. I go down and I go down for training, and I and I work on investigations. But but I got out just at the right time. And and you know when you say 
people are talking about defunding. It's really true that, that we had groups of activists and groups of, um, that there were a lot of people calling for, for defunding the police. There were a lot of people for spending our money better on the police. Uh, interestingly, you will not find among those, that, that number, most of the people who live in the neighborhoods that we were talking about. Um, and, and, and I think it was um, Pew Research did a, did a survey of people who were living in poor inner city areas and they, they were asking the residents, you know, do you want fewer police? Do you want less funding? And about 80% were like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> this was a phenomenon, um, I think primarily stoked by well-intentioned people who believed that uh, since... since be- Remember I told you that I started writing this book because I believed that we had an opportunity to affect how we're policed. I think we blew that opportunity as a society. I think that we, we allowed our dogma, it devolved into something that to me resembles nothing as much as the Second Amendment um, d- debate in America, which is not a debate. It's two people on either sides of the issue shouting over the chasm and not listening to one another. Uh, and not listening to one another for a kind of domino effect fear that, that even, uh, even any capitulation at all, even on things that we actually agree on as a society, like the background checks and closing the gun show loophole, things that could actually pass don't get passed because people are so divided on these issues. And I believe exactly as in the gun debate that this comes down to a, a failure to understand the data that's involved and the facts that are on the ground. It is a lot for me to ask you to hold the two the two concepts simultaneously in your head that the guy who assassinated Walter Scott and the cops who shot that guy uh, was it Muhammad Abdulaziz who was shooting up the military recruiting center, right? They came from the same place. They had the same training. They had the same weapons. They did the same kinds of things. And one of them went bad, and one of them did what the whole community expected. You've got to see both sides of this, and there has to be context. We failed. We failed at this as a society. So now we're looking to say, oh, well, if that didn't work, you know, that, being talking about it a lot, saying the same thing over and over, if that didn't work, well, then we should just get rid of them. I think that that's really not... I think it's beneath us. I think it's not, it's not worthy of of a society that should be able to debate these things. Mm-hmm. We should be able to let facts drive the bus. Okay. Are we still friends? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, why don't you tell us where to get the book, um, how to get in contact with you, all sure, that stuff. Sure. Book, the book, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> the book is on Amazon uh, and, and it's called In Context and, you know, I, I love it if people bought it. It's used in some, some college classes and I'm really, really proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's, it is now six years old. I can say that most of the statistics and most of the dynamics have not changed. The laws haven't changed. So, you know, it's still out there. It has yeah. a, had a longer life. We expected it would have a life of about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I find it still relevant. No, I, um, I found it extremely relevant to today. Thank so, you. I'm yeah. so happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am on Mastodon. I, um, I am at fuzztech at infosec.exchange. Great. Well, Nick, thank you for coming down. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was a beautiful place to do it. I'm glad I could have you, man. Thanks. For Thanks. Coming. Yeah.